All right. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. If you'd have a seat, we're going to uh, get right into it. I just have to start uh, the same way I did first service. I don't know if anybody has ever heard of what I'm about to tell you uh, in terms of pure baking glory, Um, but I was introduced by uh, Mike and uh, Jen Wheeler uh, to something I didn't know existed called a pie cakin. It's a pie inside of a cake, and it is... I mean, you can just feel yourself swelling as you eat it to the glory of God. So we got our Honduras team together last night, and when we're in Honduras, one of the main topics of conversation was food and pikeakins. And so um, we uh, made that request for our team kind of reflection time, and it was glorious. It was awesome. So uh, if you've never heard of it, I truly believe at the Feast of the Lord, the wedding feast at the end of the age, we will have turduckins and Pycakins together, and there's a third thing, I haven't figured out what it is, but it is glorious. So I thought I would uh, begin my sermon on sexual morality with Pycakins, just because it helps us to relax a little bit more. Um, We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, though, and uh, we're going to read in verse 12 through 20. Uh, We did read uh, 19-ish and 20 for Easter, uh, but I thought that would have the rest of it would have made a pretty saucy Sunday sermon for Easter, so we didn't hit that, but we're going to go back to it because we go verse by verse through the Bible. And uh, as we go through the Bible, uh, doing it that way, it forces us to deal with some difficult things, things that make us uncomfortable, but things that God has said, according to 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and training and rebuking and correcting in righteousness, that we might be equipped for every good work. And this includes this. So uh, we are going to read it, and it's going to uh, see what God does uh, for us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, if you all along, I read from the ESV, which is a good marriage between the NIV and the NASB. NASB is very literal, but hard to read in terms of uh, its flow. NIV is not so literal, easy to read, and ESV is kind of right in the middle, in case you're wondering why we use that version. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's Word. Now, our culture doesn't take much observation to figure this out. Our culture has hijacked sexuality. 
And it has taken what was intended as an awesome gift that blesses and has made it into an awful God that controls. And the church, historically, has done a pretty poor job of responding to this attack. And this isn't the first uh, sermon on sexuality that you could find or download or look for. But pastors, it seems, often make two mistakes when they deal with this issue. They either don't say the right things, or they say the right things in the wrong way. They're either silent and they don't say anything about it, which is foolish, because many struggle with what we're going to talk about today, and if the pastor won't talk about it, the church won't speak about it, it won't go away, it'll just be hidden. But the other alternative you see most often with churches and pastors that create big sermon campaigns called yourcrappysexlife.com or things like of that nature, and you go, what? It's sacrilegious. And it ends up taking something that's intended as beautiful gift of God and, and being flippant about it. So I don't want to be silent and I don't want to be sacrilegious. And so as a church, we intend to speak truthfully and boldly but also honorably about sexuality. So I'm going to pray that that will happen because I know how easy my flesh could be flippant. And I want to be moved out of the way and let the Holy Spirit speak. So I'm going to pray. If you bow with me. Father God, I thank You for the power of Your Word. And I know my own flesh and I know our own flesh. Father, we joke about sexuality, this beautiful thing that You gave us, And we joke about it sinfully and we speak about it wrongly or we don't speak about it at all. So I pray we won't do any of those things today, Father, but that You and Your gift will be held up high as beautiful and honorable. That You will convict those of us who need conviction and You will comfort those of us who need comfort. Not by my words, but by Yours. It is in the blood of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So out of all the churches that Paul planted, there's a lot. He wrote 13 letters and most of those letters are attached to a church. And so if you want to Find a a messed up church, if you will, out of all the churches that he ministered to and planted. Corinth, the church in Corinth, is one with the most problems. There are more problems in this church than any other church that we read about in Scripture, and it sounds a lot like many of the churches you've probably read about in the newspapers in the last how many years. Now, Corinth has so many problems in part because they lived in what was probably the most wicked city in the world at the time. Corinth was the uh, sin city of Rome, right? The the vacation destination infamous for anonymous evil living. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Now, in Corinth, and I talked about this when we first started the series, in Corinth, these people, this community, this culture, pursued every pleasure. They sought to satisfy every sexual appetite they had, unrestrained. They even worshipped their pagan gods with sexuality. And the city itself was built under the shadow of the great temple of Aphrodite. And each evening, upwards of a thousand sacred prostitutes would descend upon the city for worship. Okay? And there were plenty of worshipers to participate with them. 
And so over time, the city of Corinth became or came to have a reputation. And so living like a Corinthian, which was a phrase that began to be adopted historically, became an international byword for loose living and for sexual promiscuity. Do as the Corinthians do. Live like a Corinthian. Now, this is the world, the area, the region, the city, that the Corinthian Christians were called out of by Jesus. Right? Paul said, this is who you were. He called them out into new life, into a new way of living, into a new hope with new joy. But this is also the same world that Jesus left them in for him. But instead of using the light of the gospel to transform the world, to transform their culture, to give hope, to give new life, to give a better way, they allowed the darkness of the world and the darkness of the culture and its perversion to come into the church and begin to shape it. And so the church starts to live exactly like the world and go after the things of the world and not look very different at all than the world. Now, the early church leaders were very fearful that this would happen to the Gentile churches. See, the Corinthian church is a Gentile church, which means it's not rooted in, in Jewish history. It doesn't have the Jewish law and the Jewish morality that Peter and James and John and Jesus and all those guys were raised with. And we see in the book of Acts, about the first nine or ten chapters, the, the church begins in Jerusalem, a very Jewish city, and it becomes as a, starts as a Jewish sect, right? It's just an expression of completed Judaism, if you will. But eventually, Peter's ministry kind of wanes or, or, or is, is minimized and not emphasized much in the book of Acts. And as you get into chapter 10 and chapter 11, Paul comes on the scene, and Paul begins his ministry to reach the Gentiles, to include them in the promises to Abraham that we will have salvation by faith, whether Jewish or not Jewish. And so Paul, at some point, basically says, all right, the Jews are, are rejecting me, forget it, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he begins to preach, and people begin to be saved, and, and churches are being planted, and the church in Jerusalem is like, whoa, 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 what's happening with all these non-Jewish guys? We didn't see this coming. And so God gives Peter some visions and says, nope, the Gentiles are going to be included in salvation as well. And eventually there's kind of a conflict, and the Jews are getting mad at the Gentiles, they get mad at Paul, and they bring Paul back to Jerusalem, and they put him before a council, which includes Peter, and James and some others. And they said, do, I, do we really, are we have the right gospel? Are we preaching the right gospel? Can you give us the stamp of approval to make sure we're okay? And so they listened to everything that Paul had been preaching. And they listened to what Barnabas had been preaching. And they said, okay, you guys are preaching the gospel. It is clear that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the Gentiles and we need to support this. But before they left, they gave them some warnings. And in Acts 15, you see the last words that they tell them. Like, as you go forth to preach the gospel to these Gentiles who have been living in the culture without the law whatsoever, remember this. And in Acts 15, they said this. I think it's Peter speaking, but you might want to check on that. It says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay onto you no greater burden than these requirements. He's like, alright. Here's the only things we ask you to do. And he says, we want to make sure the Gentile Christians, they abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled. So that's all the sacrificial stuff to idols that Paul will actually address in his letter to Corinth. Stay away from food sacrificed to idols and from sexual immorality. It's the first 
first thing he tells them. As the gospel goes forth, he's not, make sure you guys live upstanding lives. Make sure you give to the church. Make sure you have awesome... Like, stay away from sexual immorality because it was a problem for the early church. The first church it was a problem for. And quite frankly, for the last 2,000 years, it's been a church and remains a problem for the church today. Sexual immorality is destroying the church. It's destroying individuals. It's destroying marriages. It's destroying families. It's destroying communities. It's destroying careers. It's destroying churches. It is pervasive. It is everywhere. It is on attack. You can do any kind of quick search on the news and you will see nine times out of ten when a church has been in trouble, when a pastor has fallen, it's been sexual morality. The Catholic Church right now is finally bringing to light all the problems they had for 10s, 20s, 30s years, which has been sexual morality. Sexual morality is an evil that is rotting the church from the inside out, not from the outside in. It's a problem. Now a lot of us come to passages like this we think, well, we haven't stumbled in this area. And you may not. You may have not stumbled in the area of sexual morality. But living in a culture like this means that you're affected by it, regardless. Our technology, as awesome as it is, has enabled us to foster a culture that is more besieged and filled with sexual perversion than any other time in history. It's not necessarily there's more of it, it's just readily available, more so than any other time. It is free, it is instant, it is everywhere, and it is, quite frankly, always anonymous now. People sitting in church can look at images on their phones as they're listening to a pastor preach about sexual morality. We live in a strange and screwed up world. It affects our clothing. It affects our schools, it affects our television, it affects our films, our music, our media, even our coffee. Our coffee. Sex has infected our coffee. This is the Northwest. What's going on? Right? I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. We hear about it. We read about sexuality. We see it. We think about it. We even legislate it. So without doubt, you or someone you know has been and will be affected by what I'm going to describe as the worship of sex. Because Peter Kreef said it rightly, I think, that sex is the effective religion of our culture. So in response to the Corinthian culture, which is not very different than ours, Paul offers truth that reveals, I think, the cause of sexual sin, especially in Christians. He's writing to Christians. He reveals the depth of sexual sin for those of us who are tempted to minimize it and think it's not that big a deal. And then he offers the means to turn from it. He begins at verse 12 with a very uh, familiar verse. Maybe new to you, but it says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be 
dominated by anything. And then he goes into some weird food metaphor that seems out of place, but I'll explain it. Sexual sin begins, for the Christian especially, maybe exclusively, for by misunderstanding freedom in Christ. It seems that a slogan arose in Corinth, and we believe it's a slogan because Paul references the same thing like four times in this letter, probably at a response or repeating what Paul had said against the legalistic Jews that were coming in, who were trying to say, la, 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 and Paul was saying, no, we have freedom in Christ. And so the Corinthians have taken that thing, all things are lawful. Everything is lawful for me. I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm forgiven. There is no more law. There are more rules. See, the previous verses in chapter 6, if you remember, it was a couple weeks ago, they dealt with lawsuits. Specifically, you had one Christian in one church taking another Christian in the same church to court to resolve some sort of dispute. They had conflicts and they were using them or using the world's courts to resolve them rather than the church. And it was legal. That was a very natural thing for them to do. It's what everyone did in their city. They were not unethical in doing that. That was within their rights. And what I'm about to say, it's, it's funny that I even have to say it, but the funny thing is, I think, or the funny thing is, we think that this is a new thing. Like, what I'm going to tell you is like a no-duh, but it seems like we forget the no-duhs most often. And here's the no-duh. Just because you can do something, just because a culture endorses or gives you the right to do something, doesn't mean that it honors God or is good for you. Isn't that weird that that's like, oh, yeah, that's right. That needs to be said more. Especially in America, where we're all about our rights. What do I have the right to do? That's within my rights. See, the Corinthians have taken what is a good proclamation of freedom in Christ. And they perverted it to mean, well, I can do and pursue and indulge in whatever I want without consequence. All is covered. Beyond trusting that they're forgiven if they fail... They have twisted a biblical truth in order to justify living the way they want. Living like the world. Now, it is true. We have freedom in Christ. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ set us free. We have freedom in Christ. But what that means is that our righteousness our rightness before God, our acceptance before a holy God is not determined by our ability to obey, but by the faith in Christ and His perfect obedience. That's what that means. Freedom in Christ is not freedom to just gratify my desires and indulge myself in whatever I want. We already see that that leads to slavery. Freedom of Christ means freedom from sin. Freedom not to sin. Freedom to serve God without fear 
of being rejected if I fail to obey perfectly, which I will and I do. That's freedom. That's joy. That's hope. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, 16, that we are to live as people who are free. We shouldn't be Saturday, despairing, Jesus is still dead in the tomb people. We should be joyful people. We should be free people. We shouldn't live with fear of screwing up. But we should not, as Peter says, use our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but to live as servants of God. So if we, if you, young or old, right? Because I know a lot of you old people are thinking, I'm so glad the youngsters are hearing this, right? (laughs) And you guys that have middle age and young age, this is for everybody. If you are ever asking, whether it be with sexuality or anything else in culture, all of the cultural decisions we have to make in life, if you ever find yourself starting to ask, well, how far can I go? What rights do I have? What or how, how much can I do here? You're asking the wrong question. The question should always begin with, how or what way can I honor God most here? What decision will bring God the most honor, even if it doesn't bring me the most pleasure? See, like most of creation... Our God didn't design sexuality without parameters. The culture teaches that any type of rule you might have for sexual activity is wrong. Any rule is oppressive, self-righteous, or narrow-minded, or puritanical. And so as you can imagine, and you don't even have to imagine, you can see, the world has quite arbitrarily decided that there are very few rules. And that as culture changes, the rules change according to whatever they like. But see, the one thing that doesn't change is this core belief that's underneath all of it. And it's actually beginning to affect Christian or has affected Christian spirituality as well. And here's the core belief under all of it in regards to this issue. It's the same core belief that the Greeks had back in Corinth. Because it's a Greek-slash-Roman state, but it's part of Greece. And the Greek belief was that the body was of little value, and the soul was of the greatest value. In other words, the body is just a shell, and it doesn't really matter what you do with it. What matters is the heart. Now, in some sense, you go, well, I kind of agree with that. Well, what that produces when you divorce those two, when you divorce belief from behavior is you have people only concerned with private, inner spirituality. And so they can do whatever they want, they can act however they want, even if it's hypocritical, because they know on the inside, they're okay. That's all they concern themselves with. Inner, private spirituality. And what we do, that is just natural, those are just appetites, kind of like animals. Well, our God has given us... um, a sexual appetite. But Paul argues that our sexual appetites are not like our food appetites, right? There is no eternal plan for the stomach. Okay? It's going to go away. Hope you understand that. There will be a time when we eat in heaven 
And we will not eat to survive. We will not eat for nourishment. We will have as many pikakens as we want. Okay? We're like, yeah, Lord, bring me another one. Why? Because it's good. That's it. We will enjoy food to enjoy food. It'll be awesome, right? Like, that sounds really good. You're right, it does. There is no eternal plan for the stomach. It is destined for destruction, but our bodies are destined for resurrection. By bodies, what Paul is talking about is a whole person. See, food is designed, literally, to satisfy our stomach's temporary hunger for nourishment. But, I should say they need each other, right? The food needs the stomach, stomach needs the food. But sexual immorality is not designed to satisfy our body's eternal hunger for relationship. G.K. Chesterton said it this way, everyone who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. See, our body, our whole person, needs the Lord to function properly, even sexually. See, sexual sin occurs when you separate the Lord, the living Lord, the resurrected Lord, from sexuality. You think, well, that's not spiritual. I have my spiritual Sunday morning religious life, and then there's my sexual life. That's a problem. And though the consequences of that decision are not always immediate, we don't always suffer the consequences of pursuing sin like that, the truth is, all separation from God, sexually or not, all separation of God will lead to physical, emotional, relational, psychological, even material death. It will be death to people, death to marriages, death to families, death to church, death to careers. It will kill it eventually. Sin will lead to death. And many foolishly believe that sexual sin is kind of harmless. It's not that big a deal. And worse than that, I think, is that a lot of people are beginning to believe that the Bible's position on sexual sin is ambiguous. And that isn't helped by all the denominations that are kind of turning on historical Christianity. That doesn't help with individuals who claim that are a Christian and live differently than how the Bible says they ought live. doesn't help when you have leaders like presidents who say, I'm a Christian, and then do and pass certain laws that seem completely contradictory to what the Bible says. It doesn't help. It brings a lot of confusion. So my hope is that we stop listening to the enemy who had said to our first parents, Adam and Eve, did God really say that? Because that's the question that keeps being asked. Did God really say you couldn't sleep with someone you were married with? Did God really say this is where the lines were? Did God really say this is what marriage is? So, let me just, on behalf of our church, on behalf of our elders and myself, and Christians, biblically, orthodox, historical, Bible-believing Christians, make it very clear what God really said. God really said that sex outside of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman is sinful. 
That is clear. That is simple to understand. That is all over the Bible. That is in church history. That is supported by biblical, natural, and historical evidence. But it is incredibly countercultural now. A theology of sexuality actually begins way back in Genesis. It doesn't begin in Leviticus, which is typically where people like to go. Love Leviticus. Want to preach Leviticus. Be an awesome series. But it begins in Genesis, and this is where Paul goes. In Genesis 2.24, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, in Jewish thought, Jesus being Jewish, Paul being Jewish, Peter, James, John, all Jewish, right? They understood this very clearly. In Jewish thought, the foundation of our faith, intercourse either sealed the marriage covenant or betrayed it. Period. It was very simple. Intercourse either sealed the marriage covenant or betrayed it. It either enriched the marriage covenant or destroyed it. So the biblical norm, in case there's confusion, is either abstinent singleness or heterosexual marriage. And all sexual expression is intended for one spouse. Any sexual expression outside of marriage, whether it be before marriage, which would be the word fornication that is used in the Bible, whether it be sex during marriage, with someone who's not your spouse, which would be called adultery, or sex with someone of the same sex, married or not, which is called homosexuality. It is all sinful. In fact, Deuteronomy 22 gives you an entire chapter of laws designed to protect your future spouse or the future spouse of someone else. God was very specific. It is not confusing. It is not ambiguous. It is very clear. And instead of asking, did God really say that, why don't we just read it? Because it is easy to understand. And difficult not to understand. See, in this letter, Paul takes it to another level, though. And what he seems to say, well, before I say that, I know I use the word sexual expression a lot. People go, well, what do you mean by sexual expression? What is sex exactly? I'm not sure if you older folks ask that, but quite frankly, I've sat down with older folks who are not married who have been asking that question. But the young people ask that question maybe more commonly. I know Chris uh, taught up at Mount Vernon Christian School, and he said that, well, if you have to ask the question, then it's probably wrong, Right? Here's what I teach my children and what I taught the kids in the high school. The Bible is actually very clear about what is sex and what is not, what is sexual expression, what is too far. And I like to go back to the passage in 1 Timothy 5 where Paul is writing to a young 30-ish year old guy who's single and he tells him and therefore tells his church to pursue all purity with young women by treating them like your sister. That's a pretty good standard. I'll hold my hand of my sister, I'll hug her, and that's about where it stops. Okay? My boys understand that very clearly. There's no confusion there. It's very simple. But as I said, Paul takes what we maybe try to minimize and say that this sin, sexual sin of any kind, 
is almost in an entirely different category of sin. We don't like categories of sin, right? Oh, all sin is sin. Oh, I'm here to tell you, not necessarily the case. Spiritually speaking, there's one lawgiver. You break the law, you're all sinful. You're right. Every sin is condemnable by God. But even Jesus, when His disciples came and said, we can't cast demons out of these guys, they won't listen to us. And He says, oh, those are tough ones. They can only come by prayer and fasting. There are difficult sins. Sins with greater consequences. Sins with greater destruction. That's what the Bible teaches. And this is what Paul teaches here. It's probably why in every single letter he writes, I think minus one, in every list of sin he provides, even qualifications of leaders or pastors and elders, sexual purity is always addressed first. It was that important. And that dangerous. Let me just make it personal for you. We put our elders through quite a training process when we um, train them to be elders, and really it's more of an assessment of elders. And one of the things we ask them is that if you were to sin right now, list out all the people that affects. And they would list usually their wife. And by sin, we're, we're talking about a sin that would be pretty significant, bring great consequences, like a little lie that no one ever experiences, you know, not as much, but sexual sin. He starts listing his wife, his kids, his extended family. He said, now put yourself as a pastor of a church. If I sin sexually, if I commit adultery, homosexuality, or whatever sin that you want to put a that devastates a lot of people. A lot more people than it ever did when I was a high school teacher. And that's sobering. And I wish men in their families would be as sober to that. Because it's a devastating sin. And so Paul puts it in a category that is much greater. And God warned time and time again His people about sexual sin because it has extra devastating effects. It is capable of destroying the smallest of children. It is capable of devastating the most average of families. It is capable of killing the healthiest of churches and bringing down the greatest of generals as we saw a couple months ago. So why is it so sinful? Well, I'll tell you. First, sexual morality is sin against God's law. God's law is good. God's law is true. God's law is wise. God's law is right. And according to Romans 1, God's law is self-evident. What's that mean? Everyone knows, including unbelievers. Everyone knows adultery is wrong. Everyone. Even high school kids, because I tested them. When I was a teacher, we said, I wonder if we can come to agreement on ten things that we think are wrong, no matter what, any culture, anywhere, anytime. We had some argument about lying. But there was no argument about adultery. None. Oh, that's always wrong. And I agree. It's self-evident. We didn't need the Ten Commandments to teach us, because it's written on man's hearts. This is God's world and He makes the rules. And God has defined marriage 
quite frankly, as a reflection of his own relationship with us. And men's recent attempt to redefine marriage is the last effort to completely separate sexuality from God. See, it began with the pill that separated it from reproduction. And then it went to pornography, which separated it from reality. Then it went to masturbation, which separated it from relationship. This is just the last straw to completely separate it from marriage. And those who pursue what is lawlessness, pursue it simply because of this. They love the momentary pleasure of sin more than the love they'll receive from the King eternally. That's the choice that's being made. It's a sin against God's law. It's also a sin against God's will. Great verse you should all memorize. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5. through 5. It says this. Couldn't be any more clear. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, colon. What's that mean? Well, the colon says, this is what it means. So this is the will of God. Your sanctification. You're set apart for His purposes. Set apart for righteousness. Okay, well what is that? That you abstain from sexual morality. Really? That's number one? Yes. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. See, there are very few times in Scripture where God speaks so directly about His will, His expressed desire. Here's one. This is His ideal. This is His plan. This is His best design for us. Paul says that God's best for you is to abstain from sexual morality and to exercise self-control. And is this because God is some cosmic killjoy? Right? That's what Adam and Eve believed. No, God, oh, you know what he knows, Adam. You guys are going to become, like, he's holding out on you. He knows how enjoyable and wonderful it is, and he doesn't want you to experience it now. He's just a big sexual party pooper. God is not a killjoy. God is a loving father who wants his children to enjoy his gifts the way they were designed to be enjoyed. Period. He knows better than you and I what is best for us. And he wants our best. But sin is also against God's people. It's against others. If you read Further in that same verse, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 6, is that the reason we abstain from sexual morality is that he doesn't want anyone to transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because implying it is wrong and it is sinful against your brother. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And therefore, whoever disregards this, young, old, married, single, whatever you are, disregards not man but God who gives the Holy Spirit to you. See, sin causes us to hurt one another. We saw that in the garden. As soon as the relationship with God was broken, the first thing Adam and Eve do is point fingers at each other. Sexual sin in particular fosters these really perverted relationships. And let me 
try to explain this, so follow along. It fosters relationships based on, and sexual sin doesn't do this, really all sin do this, so you think about this. It fosters relationships based on what we expect to get and not what we intend to give in a relationship. It creates, sexual sin that is, these kind of pseudo-marriages where we say that we're married in our hearts and we act like it in our parts. I mean, that's the reality. You know how many people have sat down and they've said, well, we're married in our hearts. We're going to get married next month. No, it looks like you're pretending to be married now. Without a covenant of marriage, you know what that creates? Without a covenant and commitment before God, it creates a relationship that's based on performance. Where men strive to feel affirmed and women want to be loved. And they're both governed by fear of not being acceptable because something better might come along. See, sexual sin causes us to use one another and it causes us to hide from one another. Sexual sin causes us to abuse one another. It preaches the Antichrist gospel. What do you mean by that? Well, for those who are involved in sexual sin, For those who have Christian friends who are involved in sexual sin and you're fearful to tell them the truth, know that they are preaching the very opposite of Jesus, the very opposite of true love. See, Christ-like love, true love, sets the other person up for their greatest good. It is self-denial. So, true love, therefore, leads away from sin, not into it. And I've had conversations with couples who are living together, sleeping together, young and old. I mean, you'd be blown away. You don't stop being frisky, okay? That's the bottom line. Old people got the same issues, still got sinful hearts. And I tell them the same thing every time. It is, I don't care how much you say you're in love, it is not loving to lead someone into sin. It's not. Call it what you want, but don't call it love. It hurts one another. And you truly don't love that person. You love yourself. Last couple, sexual sin is so sinful because it's actually a sin against God's person. This is where uh, God's person by meaning yourself. Not just God's people, others, but yourself. Paul says something weird here that's Unusual, where he says every other sin person commits outside the body, but the sexual and moral sin sins against his own body. It's difficult to know exactly what Paul means here. But what is clear is that, as I said, sexual sin's a little bit different than other sin. God designed sexuality to be one of the greatest expressions of his unity, of his oneness. And so when we give ourselves over to somebody sexually who we're not covenanted already with, we end up tearing ourselves apart at a very deep level. She expressed God's way, done God's way, within the covenant of marriage. Sexuality bonds you to your spouse like nothing else. It's awesome. There's an emotional connection, a physical connection, even a spiritual connection that bonds you to one person and it's beautiful. 
but done the wrong way outside the covenant of marriage, what happens is that you still bond. But very addictive bonds are created. And chemically speaking, get into the physical world, it's a bond that is as strong as a cocaine addiction. You become bonded sexually to the wrong things. Someone that is not your spouse, someone that isn't even a real person. And it ends up destroying your relationships with everyone. And while the culture warns our children, right? My son, who had just turned, about to turn 12, the sexual curriculum for the junior high. Maybe you went through it, probably did. We went and, as good parents, along with about five others, to listen to what they were going to teach. And it wasn't anti-biblical, it was just stupid. Okay? So we pulled them out initially. We ended up putting them back in, but that's a whole other story. And I noticed, or the thing that is common with all of these sexual curriculums is that they are very good. The culture is very good about warning our children about the dangers of pregnancy, about the dangers of STDs, about the dangers of all of these physical things, including HIV. But they are horrible. And they ignore completely any of the emotional consequences of sexual morality. Which, quite frankly, are the ones that devastate most people. See, bonds are easily created, but they are not easily broken. And for those of us who have experienced sexual morality, we have failed in our past, whatever, And I stand before you not as the pastor who, you know what, never made a mistake and he is all pure and didn't do anything sinful with some girl somewhere in his past. No, I made my mistakes as well sexually. They may have been more or than you or less than you. I have no idea. Better than you, worse. I have no idea. But I stand before you as a sinner, saved by grace, cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, offering Nothing but my sin to Jesus and Him saying, I know everything you did and you're forgiven. I sinned sexually as well. And the sad thing about that truth for me is that I can remember every person that I have that bond with. Every person that I have a connection with is someone, and I still see some of them today. And guess what? When I'm in their presence, I feel weird. And that's the way it should be. And I don't say that to put some hopelessness stamp on there, but the reality is sexual sin is powerful. And you can be freed from it, and you can be cleansed from it, but there are consequences that quite frankly for me are still plaguing my life a little bit. Very few people I know will argue and hope that their spouse or they themselves would have sinned sexually with more people before they got married. You know, I wish I would have slept with a few more women, hon. Might have made things better. You know that's not true. It's a sin against yourself. And lastly, it's a sin against God's Savior. 
Jesus. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? See, sexual sin does harm to your relationship with God. Paul speaks directly to the men in the church who are frequenting temple prostitutes in Corinth. That's who he's addressing. Now, culture argues, Corinthian culture and our culture, that these impulses are natural, that this is legal, that this is a harmless thing. It's good that we have sexual desires, and I don't argue that. C.S. Lewis, I think, put the argument very well. He says, if anyone says that sex in itself is bad, Christianity contradicts him at once. So hear what I'm saying. Sex is not a bad thing. Neither is alcohol. Neither is food. Neither are jobs, but we have found great ways to infect them with sin and to screw them up. Sexuality is not a bad thing. He says, but of course, when people say sex is nothing to be ashamed of, they may mean that the state in which the sexual instinct has now got is nothing to be ashamed of. Well, you look at our sexual culture, and you go, well, it's not that bad. C.S. Lewis says, if they mean that, I think they're wrong. I think it is everything to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be ashamed of of enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if half the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. That's the problem with sexuality. It's gone from a blessed gift to an awful God that we worship. See, Paul argues that our actions are not harmless because they're just physical. He says, look, they're way more than physical. They're way more than emotional. They're actually spiritual. And they are never, ever private. They're never, ever anonymous. They involve Christ for the Christian. And those who are in Christ, the body is a temple built to worship God. And every time we sin sexually, if we are practicing sexual sin, if we are pursuing sexual sin, you are worshiping a false god And you cannot worship Jesus. I've sat down with people in my house who sat before me having confessed the name of Jesus and said, oh, I know we're living in sin. Flippantly and otherwise. And I said, you are not a Christian. A Christian would never have that attitude towards sin. Doesn't mean a Christian would not sin sexually. But they... The difference between a believer and a non-believer is repentance. Not sin. We share that. It's repentance and attitude towards sin. So, to close it out, let me just be very clear about this. If you look at this passage, it is addressed to men. Young and old. Frequenting prostitutes. So if you're a young man, or you're an old man, or you're a middle-aged man, if you're in high school, or if you're retired, or if you're working, you listen. Man, you 
are the one who is called to lead away from this. You are the ones called by God, equipped by God, empowered by God to uphold His moral law. You are the one who is to pursue His best for your life. You are the one who is called to protect those in your care, whether it be your wife or your children or the women of this church, you are called to protect them from sexual impurity. You are called to lead in fostering a pure relationship with Jesus, which at times means leading in confession and repentance and showing them what it means to really believe the gospel. To really believe that when I confess, I am cleansed. That when I confess, I am freed. And when I hide, I am beat down and rotting from the inside out because of God pressing upon me. Read Psalm 32. Many men will dismiss the sin of the Corinthians because, well, it's not applicable to me. I, I've never committed adultery and I'm never going to go to a prostitute. So, <laughs> let's get on to chapter 7. But I will tell you this, many men, many men, and even some women, become one with an image on a screen or even a paragraph in a book like Fifty Shades of Grey daily. And unlike Corinth, most of today's culture rejects physical prostitution. Isn't that interesting? Our culture now is like, oh, that's horrible. Even the non-believer, oh, <laughs> prostitution, that's bad. That's bad. But most of our culture today, even evangelical culture, embraces mental prostitution. Where we seek pleasure through pornographic websites and movies and books and images. But I don't watch pornography. I don't look at that stuff. Doug Wilson gave a great image one time. He said, imagine a a story of a couple going to a friend's house that they know and have spent time with and they knock on their door and they answer the door and they said, hey, how are you guys? Oh, good. What do you need? Well, we would just like to come in and watch you guys have sex. They go, what? What are you talking about? He said, well, we just assumed with the movie we watched together the other night where we were watching someone who wasn't your spouse engage in sex that it was okay if we watched you. No different, is it? Because the standard isn't, oh, is it rated R? Is it PG-13? The standard. Are we looking at someone else's spouse? Are you looking at your own? Pretty good standard to figure out. And we can justify and, and kind of bend the rules as much as we can to figure out, well, that's not really sexual morality. See, Jesus knew that men were going to try and play games with the rules. And he knew that the most powerful sexual organ in the body was, guess what? A person's mind. That's why he said in his sermon... In Matthew 5, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He knew they'd play the game. Well, I haven't committed adultery. See, unrestrained lust of this kind of nature is literally at a click of a button. 
and iPhones and laptops are the new pimps. And a virtual prostitute is only a Google search away. And just to show you the overwhelming nature of our culture, know that those who call themselves Christians, 50% of you, Christian men that is, and 20% of Christian women report they're addicted to pornography. Another 25% lie. And those who identify themselves as fundamentalist Christians, well, I'm the conservative type, Sam, well, know that they're 91% more likely to look at porn. And the most common day to look at porn is on Sunday. So the most traffic occurs. And those who are single know that 68% of young adult men and 18% of women use porn at least once every week. And for those of you who are married and know that it will never hurt your marriage, 56% of divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. And for those who are parents, know that the average age of the first internet exposure, accidentally, mind you, is age 11, through any of the 4.2 million pornographic websites on the internet. And know that one-fourth of all the search engine requests are for pornographic things, which are about 68 million every day. And that there are nearly 1.5 billion pornographic downloads per month. And know that in the last two minutes, over $369,000 has been spent on pornography. Almost 3.4 million people have viewed pornography, and nearly 45,000 people have searched for adult terms in the last two minutes. Did you know if you took the amount of um, revenue that the United States and China have from the porn industry, you would be able to pay for 92% of the world's hunger. We're in a really broken world. And you think for a second that that's not going to affect you or try and justify your way out by saying, I can handle it, you're a fool. We have to flee, as Paul says, from sexual immorality because it is running after us. It will destroy you. It will destroy your marriage, your family, your church, your job, and your future. And we have to make it not just a simple one-day decision, but a habit, a practice, a daily fight. And for some of you guys, it's going to be daily. A fight for purity. As John Owen said, you need to be killing your sin or it's going to kill you. And know that the problem is not access. It is not affordability. The heart of the problem is not even the anonymous nature of sexual immorality. It's our hearts. We have a worship disorder. Our hearts are broken. So it's not enough to just stop presenting your body to prostitutes literally or to put a filter on your computer, though that will help. It is an internal problem that does not have an external solution. The solution is turning away from your sin and toward Christ. The solution is confession. It's bringing it into the light. No matter how small you think it is and insignificant you think it might be, it's not that big a deal. If you're feeling that way about it, guess what? God thinks it's a big deal. Confess your sin. Repent and present your body to its owner, your master. Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Jesus died for you. 
so you didn't have to be enslaved to this, but not so you'd stay just sitting, dwelling in your sin on Saturday so that you would live on the Sunday of the resurrection and glorify God with your body. Because what God formed was made good. Men are the ones who have deformed it and made it bad. And our culture is going to make an argument that, well, it's my body. I can do whatever I want with it. Have you heard that? That attitude and thought and belief has led to millions of people addicted to sex, millions of people in therapy, and millions of broken marriages, and millions of babies being killed. Revealing that, quite frankly, our self-ownership is a pretty bad idea. If you rebel, I can promise you, you will not be able to handle it. You will not be able to control your sinful flesh, and you will confuse the gifts of God for God Himself. I pray you will turn, because God made sexuality to be a blessing and not a curse. And don't settle for a culture's perverted version, because guess what? It falls so short of what God wants for His children. And don't allow your sinful mistakes, because I know there's people in here who's made them. Do not allow your sinful mistakes, your sinful past, your history to govern you. And do not allow the sinful abuses of someone else to come in and govern how you view God's gift of sexuality. Live in the resurrection, in the place of new life, in the place of restoration, in the place where Jesus can take that which is ashes and make it beautiful, that which is dead, and make it alive, that which is hopeless, and make hopeful. And when you entrust yourself to Jesus, He makes all things new. It's never too late to return to your owner. Jesus shed His blood to do two things. Many things, but two I will identify. To remove the guilt of what you've done. And to remove the shame of what has been done to you. Your body belongs to Jesus. So honor Him. And enjoy Him by living the way He's designed you to live. And it's never too late to do that. We come to the table every Sunday reminding ourselves that we are broken Sinners saved by grace. And when you pick up that bread, if you are a believer, and you dip it in that cup that is Jesus' body and His blood shed for you, you tell yourself, 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, not that. It's all unrighteousness. Unrighteousness you have done or unrighteousness someone has done to you. And rejoice that you are forgiven. And go live in the resurrection, which means a different life. Yes, you are saved by faith alone, but as Luther said, faith never stays alone. Live in the glory of your Savior. Amen? Let's pray.